Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. I'm Jan Weil with Living Word Ministries, filling in for Debbie Blank. And we're happy to have you joining us for this exciting study in the book of 2 Thessalonians. I find both 1 and 2 Thessalonians fascinating books because Paul was writing to new believers. He had established this church in just three weeks, and then he had to flee due to persecution. But in that short time with these new believers, Paul taught them about the rapture of the church. In fact, he taught them what had to happen before the day of the Lord would begin and the Antichrist would be revealed. But when we think of end times prophecy, we naturally think of the New Testament book of Revelation and the Old Testament book of Daniel. Yet there are several books throughout the Bible that teach us unique pieces of the end times puzzle. We're going to see what unique end times puzzle pieces we learn from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church of Thessalonica. I'm Jan Weil with Living Word Ministries, filling in for Debbie Blank. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. The idea of the rapture, that Jesus is coming soon in the clouds to gather living and raised believers to heaven, has been a point of controversy in the church. There are people who dismiss this idea outright, saying the term rapture can't even be found anywhere in the Bible. Others believe in the concept, but disagree on the timing. And still others have never even heard of something called the rapture. But the Apostle Paul considered it to be one of the main things he wanted the brand new believers in Thessalonica to clearly understand. He addresses it in both his letters to them. Why was it so important for the Thessalonians to clearly understand it? And why is it especially important to those of us living in the last days? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians around 51 AD and probably wrote 2 Thessalonians a short time after that while still in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Thessalonica was a prominent seaport, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Its name has changed to Thessaloniki, but it's still the second largest city in Greece today. Paul met a lot of resistance when he went to Thessalonica. The Jews were jealous of his success and formed an angry mob to chase him out. They opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul was preaching. But in spite of the Jewish resistance, there was a group who repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Most of these new Thessalonian believers were Gentiles who came out of idolatry. After Paul was forced to flee from this angry mob, he was concerned about this new group of believers in Thessalonica. So he sent his disciple Timothy back to check on them. Timothy returned with a good report that the Thessalonian believers were remaining steadfast in their faith. But they were concerned about the believers among them who had died and would miss the rapture. Paul wrote a letter, which we know as 1 Thessalonians, to be delivered to this new church in response to Timothy's report about their concerns. In this letter, Paul explained what the rapture would be like and assured them that those who had already died would not miss it. 
So at this point, I'm not sure everyone understands what the rapture is. So can you explain to us, what does it mean, the rapture? The rapture is when Jesus takes his followers, those who have already died and those who are still alive at the time to be with him forever. And it's confusing because the word rapture doesn't actually appear in scripture. In the original Greek language, the word harpaso is used. And then when it was translated to Latin, in Latin, harpaso is rapio. So when the Bible was translated from Latin to English, rather than translating rapio to the English word rapture, the translators decided to use the phrases caught up or snatch away. But when we speak of this moment in time when Jesus' followers are caught up or snatched away, it doesn't really make sense for us to say the caught up or the snatch away. So we refer to the great event as the rapture from the Latin word rapio. A lot of people say the rapture is a new concept not based on scripture, but scripture actually refers to a rapture nine times throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example, Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. God raptured Enoch. 2 Kings 2.11 says, As they were going along and talking, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. God raptured Elijah. Ezekiel 8.3 says, He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. God raptured Ezekiel. Acts 1.9 says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus' ascension was even a rapture. Acts 8.39 says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. God raptured Philip. 2 Corinthians 12.2 says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. God raptured Paul here. Revelation 4.1 says, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. God raptured John here. Revelation eleven twelve says, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. This is describing when God will rapture the two witnesses during the seven-year tribulation. So there are several examples of raptures throughout the Bible, which means the rapture is clearly not a new concept. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, You've just rattled off a whole list of people who have been raptured. Right. And the idea of snatched away, like being snatched away out of danger. If you were to grab a child who's wandering off into the street and there's an oncoming car, you would snatch that child out of the way. So that's kind of how I picture it. That's a great image. Let's look at how Paul explains the rapture to these new believers in the first book of Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. 16 through 18. He said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice that Paul is teaching them to prepare for the rapture, not for the seven-year tribulation. He's teaching them that the rapture is imminent, that it could happen at any time. He wouldn't be saying comfort one another with these words unless the rapture happens before the tribulation. Especially if you've read Revelation and you know what the seven-year tribulation is like, it would not be a comfort to know you were going through that first, or even part of it first. So that's where some of the timing comes in as far as the rapture is concerned. Also, people sometimes wonder about this being caught up in the air, where there are scriptures that say that Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives. So we're talking about two separate events. It's not a conflict, it's just that there are two separate events, one in the air and one on the earth. Absolutely. So the rapture is when we're caught up to the air, and that's before the tribulation begins. And then the second coming of Jesus, where he actually comes and touches the earth, that's at the end of the tribulation, which is described in Revelation 19. Paul then goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath. Now, many people believe God's wrath doesn't start until the middle of the seven-year tribulation, Some of the confusion, too, is if we're talking about God's wrath or are we talking about Satan's wrath? Now, the persecutions that the Christians have suffered throughout the centuries are more Satan's wrath. It's his persecution of the church, him not wanting the gospel to get out to people, and so throwing whatever kind of obstacles he can in the way of Christians. And then having God blamed for it is kind of interesting, but this is Satan's wrath. God's wrath is something else, something different. Jesus said in John 16, 33, In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. God's wrath in the seven-year tribulation period is not the same as the tribulation followers of Jesus will suffer in this fallen world during this period right now, the church age. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, when Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, he's talking about the wrath of God, which we're told will start with the first set of seal judgments. When you look at the seal judgments and trumpet judgments, they're no picnic. It's a horrible time of God's judgment that's just increasing like birth pains as it goes along. So let's look at where we're told exactly what God's wrath is. It's in Revelation 6, and this is in the description of the seal judgments, not even getting to the trumpet or bowl judgments yet. In Revelation 6, 16 and 17, it says, They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Paul clearly taught the church of Thessalonica that the rapture would happen before the seven-year tribulation period when God would rain down his judgments on those who refused to trust in Jesus. And you've just pointed out it happens early in Revelation. So it's the wrath of the Father, the wrath of God, and the Lamb. It's very clear. That brings us to the reason Paul wrote Second Thessalonians. There was false information being spread that they had missed the rapture and the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation. They thought because of the persecution and trials they were facing that they'd missed it. They were just panicking. 
it's just like Satan to use fake news, isn't it? Absolutely. To um, take these uh, new believers and shake their faith using these tricks of his trade, the fake news, and also persecutions and trials. It's his persecutions, his trials, and then he's blaming them on God and making the people think that perhaps they've missed the rapture. So this is the whole purpose that he writes Second Thessalonians, to correct this false teaching and give them assurance that they had not missed the rapture. He did this by telling them what must happen before the judgments of the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation could begin. That confirms the purpose of Second Thessalonians, is he makes it clear for them what to look for before this all happens. So as we see the birth pains Jesus told us about in Matthew 24 increasing with frequency and intensity in our time right now, today, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, earthquakes, and the looming threat of worldwide famine that seems just over the horizon, we certainly want to know what must happen before the seven-year tribulation begins, don't we? With that, let's go ahead and dive in to the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. Let's look at these first two verses of Second Thessalonians 1, which says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is clearly the author of this letter, but he also gives Silvanus and Timothy credibility as his associates in ministry. We normally see Silvanus referred to as Silas, but since the Thessalonians are Greek, Paul uses the Greek form of Silas' name to better identify with them. But notice in both verses, there's a repeated phrase, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever a phrase is repeated, we always want to ask, well, why is it being repeated? The sentence structure of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ indicates they are one. And I was wondering about that. Is that something we see in the English that then is confirmed in the Greek? When we look at it even in English, and yes, you would also see it in Greek, but notice as we see God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's indicating Jesus is on an equal level with God the Father. Of course, we see that several places in the New Testament. For instance, in John 10:30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, we see that equalness between God the Father and Jesus. Paul's making sure his readers understand that Jesus is God and that he is one with the Father. As is typical of Paul's greetings, he wishes grace and peace to his readers. Grace is a typical Greek greeting, and peace is a common Jewish greeting. Grace is God's unmerited favor, which he freely gives to those who accept Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross in their place. So grace can be remembered by the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Peace is something that everyone wants, but we can't attain true peace without Christ. Because we know that Christ is the Prince of Peace. We know that from Scripture. And we also know that the word shalom, which is peace in Hebrew, doesn't just mean absence of conflict, that kind of peace. But it's more positive than that. It has to do with wholeness. Nothing gone missing. Everything that you need to be supplied happens in Jesus Christ. When we have him, we have that peace. 
And I think of the scripture from Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we submit our lives to Jesus, then even in the midst of trials and persecution, we can be filled and sustained by his peace that surpasses all understanding. And if you've experienced that kind of peace, you know it's not something anyone can possibly attain on their own. It's only through God. I've experienced that myself. When I was told by a visibly shaken doctor that a large lump on my neck was likely cancer, I was really nervous. But after a great deal of prayer, I experienced the peace of Christ fill me in a way that I really can't even describe other than to say it surpasses all understanding. So Paul prays that these new Thessalonian believers would experience God's grace and peace through their trials and persecution. It's a very powerful witness when you come through that yourself. And maybe people have observed you going through that and seeing the peace that you attained through Christ. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at verses 3 through 5. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God by your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous decision of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer." Paul was giving thanks for the Thessalonian believers because their faith was growing. Our faith in God is never static. It's increasing or it's decreasing. I know a lot of people who think their faith is just fine because it's stable. That's good. It's the same that it's always been. Well, that's the same year over and over again. That's not growing. And we're expected to grow in Christ. So Christ says, come. He says, go. He says, follow, not sit. Faith is an action word. It's ebbing or flowing. It's not static. I have a friend who wants to sit on the fence and not serve God, but he thinks he is. But Jesus doesn't call us to be sitting on the fence. He calls us to be getting up and following him. So the question we should ask ourselves is, am I really getting up and following Jesus? Is your faith increasing or decreasing today? Second, Paul was giving thanks because their love for one another was increasing. Have you ever heard the saying, faith is the root, love is the fruit? James 2, 14 through 17 tells us genuine faith in God is always accompanied by love for others. The fact that their love was increasing was proof that their faith was genuine. We can probably identify with the Thessalonians better today than any other time in our lives. As we start to experience increased trials, are we leaning into God or pulling away? And that's a terrific question because you can go one way or you can go the other. And as I see people confront trials, I've seen people turn to God and they experience peace and growth or they turn away from him in bitterness. And then they turn to substance abuse or other destructive activities to try to fill that gap. And there's no relief unless it comes from Jesus Christ. When we devote time daily to God in prayer, worship, and studying his word, just like the Thessalonians, he helps us remain steadfast in our faith and fills us with his peace and grace in the middle of the trials that come our way. Did you know that it's actually through trials that our faith will have the opportunity to grow and truly become steadfast? 
James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Many people these days expect their trials to go away if they become a follower of Jesus. But we see here that the Thessalonians were drawing close to God, growing in their faith and love for others, yet they were still experiencing trials and persecutions. And that's actually consistent with what Scripture says. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone suffers trials in life. What Christians experience are trials with Jesus, where he is with us. And the difference between that and an unbeliever is they go through trials and tribulations just because of how life is, but they do it without Christ. You see people go through things without any hope, and it's very, very sad because it opens us up to Satan's deception of what can bring peace. The destructive behaviors I mentioned before, people trying to numb their feelings, it doesn't solve anything. And that's actually my faith story. I watched my aunt dying of leukemia, but full of faith and joy and constantly saying Jesus was sustaining her and giving her everything she needed. And that's what really drew me and made me realize that I needed Jesus as well. We can expect persecution and trials, but Jesus promises to be with us through these trials, guide us along the way, and use us to share his message of salvation. As we get closer to the end of the church age, persecution of Christians will increase. But if we stay in God's word and lean in, he'll see us through. Verse 5 is a verse that, on a quick read, could be taken out of context. We could look at this passage and possibly think Paul is saying that these new Thessalonian believers were counted worthy of the kingdom of God because of the persecutions and trials they endured for their faith. But none of us are worthy of the kingdom of God by anything we suffer in this life. Even in our faith doesn't add one bit to Jesus' sacrifice because in his sacrifice, he paid it all. And then he said, it is finished to die, according to John 19.30. So the Thessalonian believers' response to their suffering demonstrated their faith. And then because of their faith in Jesus' sacrifice in their place, God considered them worthy of the kingdom of God. Through all of Scripture, we see salvation is based on faith alone, not works. Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Those Scriptures make it very clear. Right. When we hear of Christians being persecuted by their faith or going through trials, we immediately think it's unfair. In fact, our tendency is to say, why me when we suffer? Let's go ahead and take a look at verses 6 through 8. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to the glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed 
for our testimony to you was believed. How does the thought of God repaying those who persecute you make you feel? Well, it depends on who's persecuting you and the level of persecution you're experiencing. Most of the time, the thought of God paying back those who persecute you sounds good. But if the persecutors are family members who are far from God, you might feel differently. So while there's comfort in knowing God will repay our enemies and give us rest, there's also sorrow in knowing what's waiting for those who persecute us. Matthew 5:44 says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're called to pray. Praying for the salvation of your enemies frees you to forgive and it frees God to do what he needs to do. Verse 6 also says that when God repays our affliction, it is only just. So we can trust God's justice in all situations with all people. Notice in verse 8, it tells us there are two groups of people who will receive God's vengeance. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now, we might think that it seems unfair for those who are ignorant of God to receive his judgment, but Romans 1 tells us that they can see the invisible attributes of God and they are without excuse. That means that deep down we all know that God is the only possible author of all creation, which also means that deep down we know that people choose to reject. Verse 9 tells us those who refuse to repent and follow Jesus will pay the price of eternal destruction. We have to trust that God is just in his rewards and in his retribution. Without judgment, there's no holiness. But for those who've repented and trusted in Jesus' sacrifice in their place, he's taken all of God's wrath upon himself and given us his rewards. And when we realize the grace and forgiveness we've been given, we should feel an obligation to pray for those around us who don't know Jesus and make every attempt to share the message of his salvation with them. When we realize the extent of our own sin and how much we've been forgiven, it should give us a greater heart to pray for those who are still lost. Well, then Paul closes this chapter with these words in verse 11 and 12. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire of goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Paul prayed the Thessalonians would live worthy of their calling. Like the Thessalonians, we need to ask the question, How do we live worthy of God's calling? Is our faith growing? Is our love for one another increasing? In our conversations and even on social media, do we spend more time sharing about the joy and the strength we have in Jesus, which is going to draw others to a relationship with him? Or do we spend more time being negative and complaining about everything that's going on around us? Notice in verse 12, Paul ends the chapter with the same link between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that he began with. He's reminding the Thessalonians and us the undeniable equality and oneness between God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, and that's why he's the only one worthy to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. What's one thing you can take from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, apply to your life and share with others. How does this chapter give you a different way to respond when you're suffering? Are you leaning in 
and asking him to strengthen you with his grace and peace. If you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, is your life, your words, and your walk demonstrating that to those who are close to you and far from God? I'm Jan Weil with Living Word Ministries, filling in for Debbie Blank. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.